All right. We have a great episode of Side Retired today as Dylan and Nico as always. And today we're going to be joined by a very special guest. So Nico, let's hit the intro music and we'll get right into this. Hello and welcome to this edition of Side Retired. It's Dylan Campione and Nico Fernandez as always. And Nico, before I introduce our guest, how are you doing today? Can't complain. It's Christmas time. Finally home. So good to be out of the D.C. weather and some Miami hot weather. <laughs> Love it. Absolutely. But today we are joined. I know everyone loves listening to our voices, but we've got a very special guest on with us. We've got former first round draft pick as well as the founder of DVS Baseball, Justin Orenduff, is joining us today. Justin, thanks so much for hopping on the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Look forward to being here. Absolutely. So the first question we always ask our guests is we start way back at the beginning. And that's how did you first get into baseball? Was it you were two years old and the ball was already in your hand? Or was it a little bit later? And at what point did you know, hey, I'm actually pretty good at this thing? Yeah, well, it's pretty easy. My dad was really involved with church and little league. And, you know, that's where I grew up. And he had served on the board and was always coaching. And so I naturally grew up on the baseball field. But my love of pitching began nine, 10 years old when my dad had asked me if I wanted to pitch. So I said, sure. And my first time up on the mound, I just happened to, you know, be really good at it. And I threw harder than most kids. And it just is something that kind of came easy. And uh, but also as I continue to mature, I just developed kind of a love for it. And, um, you know, as I transitioned through high school and, you know, through college, it's just pitching uh, was just something that I was really drawn towards. And, you know, obviously now the analysis and, you know, what it means for your career and all these things that I've studied, obviously, I continue to have a passion for. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, you think that, like, as you got older, it kind of changed from like a passion to like, wow, like I actually have to do the research. Like, when did that thought the love for like the understanding actually how pitching worked because I think there's the love for just pitching in terms of like oh I'm throwing a baseball and a love for pitching wow like I'm going to study my mechanics study how the body works and study how all my pitches work yeah that's a great question I think growing up we you know naturally looked at what some of the pitchers of our time were doing and whether that was Pedro Martinez or Roger Clemens or you know we had uh, the young stars like Kerry Wood and Mark Pryor. And, you know, you you kind of innately developed a, a movement style or pattern that kind of resembles some of the guys that you watch on TV. Um, but some of the analytics, the biomechanics, they weren't very common, you know, through conversations in coaches or video or even technology that we had to use. So we operate a lot off visuals, feels and cues and you know, things that we could directly see how it translated into the game. But my understanding and or appreciation of um, biomechanics or what I like to call sequencing didn't start until um, I retired and I started to go back to school and I needed to find answers as to why I got hurt and uh, other guys could keep pitching. And, you know, that's something that continues to fuel me. But, you know, I did go through a period from, I'd say 2007 to 2011, where throwing a baseball was difficult. It hurt. I was always sore. Um, I didn't have much success. 
you know, it really burnt me out. And I kind of developed a sense of um, anxiety about throwing to a certain extent. And uh, that happens to a lot of players now. And so now that I started to go to my research, it took me every bit of three to four years to reinvent how I threw a ball. And um, but now I'm back to that same spot I was at, you know, nine years old, where it's a joy to throw. Um, it doesn't hurt. I know where the ball's going. And, um, you know, I can just help other you know pitchers realize that type of thing. Absolutely. I love that. And sort of one of those things based off that is that uh, especially at the college level, we'll see sort of some pitchers that are like, hey, I want nothing to do with analytics. I'm just going to pick up the ball and throw it as hard as possible and strike out batters. But then there are pitchers and it seems like as you've grown up, you've continued to develop the skill more of that. Hey, the numbers can help me and the numbers are actually going to make me a better pitcher. So what do you think is that fine balance between the two? Because obviously you don't want to give a pitcher too much information and cloud their memory, but at the same time, it's pretty helpful information. Yes. Yeah, you know, it's a great question too. I, I think that there's a common theme or mindset that persists throughout all of baseball, which is, well, there's no one way to throw the ball, you know, and that may be true, but at the same time, just like there's pitch metrics now that indicate that you may have the ability to perform at a higher level, or we're going to scout you and this pitch, you know, profiles to a higher level. Well, there's also metrics within your body and your mechanics that profile to allow you to stay, you know, healthier. And I think that it's having that mindset is the higher that you go in terms of your level of play at some point, your ability to avoid a major injury and understanding more about those risk factors, but more really it's about timing. You know, those metrics are important. And um, I think identifying those and using those at the same level as you would a pitch metric, you know, they can really go hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, how do you think that if you had that information more in like your college career and kind of going into minor leagues, like what do you think is the role that minor leaguers, especially as they develop and have to go through the day-to-day they can use the analytics because a lot of times I think that players, they go and they see analytics and they don't understand it. What do you think is the Mm -hmm. simplest way to understand analytics? Obviously you talked a little bit about the timing and the sequencing, but I think a lot of people, the reason they don't like analytics is because they just simply don't understand it and don't understand how to apply it. Well, it's just the old adage is show is better than tell. And, you know, you can have a conversation with somebody, but when you can show them, um, and translate the analytics to a movement, to an action, and you can show them how easy it may be, then it's a lot easier to get on board with what you're trying to get them to understand. That's the gap in baseball right now, and that's what I wrote about, you know, after my time in winter beatings a couple weeks ago is just, you know, we have um, no shortage of data analytics. It's just a ton of insights about what we know. And we've always known things throughout the game. We just have more ways to quantify them or term them. And um, But players are always going to be hungry of how to increase their ability to perform and you know continue to grow in the game. So whether that happens in the organization or the college program that they're in, they're going to seek it out. And um, if you can find that trusted voice, amongst someone who can deliver both the analytics and then show you how to apply them. Well, that's the sweet spot. I love that. And then sort of looking back at your career, what point did you start to incorporate that into your own game? Obviously we've developed a lot over the last decade or so from 
you know, when you used to play in 2003, 2004 versus at this point now here in 2023. But did you incorporate numbers into your play or were you more sort of that, hey, I just want to throw a baseball? You know, so in my time with the Dodgers, I mean, you know, Dodgers are on the forefront of so many things now, but um, it wasn't prevalent. I mean, we didn't have uh, um, the standard use of where you could just go in and always see your video. You could see your track man data of your last start. You know, the coaches knew some of the aspects of just pure velocity, you know, strikes and, you know, where you were missing and where your general usage was. Um, but we couldn't go and, you know, hop in a lab or understand our mechanics to a higher level. I mean, there wasn't a consensus there. I mean, the tools are there now. We can extract a lot from it, but I still think there's not a general consensus of like, you know, the most efficient practices to do because it goes back to having a fear of it. Um, but, you know, I think that's, you got to take risk and you got to, you got to try. And um, because right now, as we can see, more players are falling by the wayside with some of these stuff that are actually advancing to get the right usage out of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think because you went through that, because you went through the college and because you were a professional baseball player that you're able to see like the mistakes that happened in like your career and so many other careers. What was it like going through, looking back on it, how your career played out, going to VCU, going to GW, playing for the Dodgers and just looking back on it in retrospect? Well, it was I mean, it was obviously rewarding. I mean, there's there's obviously validity in steps that you get to. I mean, I've always been introduced as a first-round pick and played for Team USA and all these things. And, you know, when I was going through it, I mean, I was in double-A uh, in our first full season. I was cruising, and then in the second year, I was back in double-A, and um, the general manager of the Dodgers flew in to see me pitch. Um, and this was late May. I think it was Memorial Day weekend, 2006, and – it was only a matter of time before I got called up, but that game, um, Tampa had three big leaguers on rehab assignment. I did well, and uh, but the next morning is when I woke up and I just couldn't lift my arm up, and um, I knew that I was hurt. And so, you know, at that point, I said, "Oh, well, it's unfortunate timing." You know, and I didn't have to miss your typical full year with like a Tommy John or like major shoulder reconstruction. I lost eighty percent of my bicep tendon. Um, but the whole thing was during that transition of getting surgery to getting back on the field, I didn't change anything based off the way I threw. I, I threw the same. Um, and then when going back to the field, that that whole like functionality of how everything worked just didn't work as good. You know, so there it's not to say that I couldn't throw 93 miles per hour or throw a fastball on the black. I just couldn't do it as consistently as I used to be able to do it before. Absolutely. And that's sort of one of the fascinating things that Nico and I will never fully understand because we aren't professional athletes, obviously. But that recovery process has to be one of those most like grueling, tiresome, but I guess it is also rewarding at the end of it once you finally come out of it. So what was that whole process like for you, sort of the day to day grind as well as trying to stay mentally prepared? Because I assume that's still a big part of DVS sports and everything else that you're doing as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, that time when you're recovering and you're going through it, I mean, you know, that's the best time because an athlete has the most time to implement or learn things about themselves that may have led to an injury or how they want to reinvent themselves so they can avoid it or just overall be more successful as they come back. Because, I mean, you go to 
you go to the complex and you may do two and a half, maybe three hours of work to for your arm or whatever be to, to rehab your injury, then you just have like the entire day left. You know, so a lot of guys during their time with that, you know, they would start to get into where they're not making the best decisions because you have just too much time. You know, so it, it should become an educational process um, to learn more. And that should be a part of your job if you're going through it. And I, you know, that would be something to where, you know, I would want to help close that gap as well. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously the amount of kids you help is just extremely impactful like for their career. And hopefully that one day they're able to hear kind of the words that you got the call. What was that like getting the call in the early 2000s and that you got drafted by the Dodgers? I'm sure it must have been amazing. Well, it was. I mean, you kind of, I tell everybody, and I, I really believe this, is like as a player, you should be focused on the things that you can control. And you go out there and you just execute and you continue to do it. And you build up a resume and the things that come along with that, sometimes we don't know. But I think that after I played for Team USA in uh, the 03 summer, you know, you're playing with the best players in the country. And, you know, I led the that team in wins. And, you know, it was just a, a great summer. And I had positioned myself to be one of the, the top arms drafted. And my, my junior year, we didn't have a great year as a team. I did okay individually. Um, but I still knew that, you know, getting drafted was going to be a pretty foreseeable thing. Um, but then when it kind of happens in the next stage of your life begins, you know, it's say, okay, I was a amateur player. Now I'm professional. You know, most of my teammates are still in college and I didn't get to finish college, but now I have to kind of, you know, rededicate my time and energy to something else, but it's what you work for. And, um, but it happened and it's just like, you know, the injury that happened two years later, you don't think that's going to happen either. You know, but it's just such as life. You know, these things happen. You just kind of deal with them and you keep going. Um, but the moment that it happened, you know, I had all the close friends and family there to support me. And this is before, you know, what they do with the draft now, where it's televised and, you know, it's more of a, a spectacle, an event that you can um, have online or on TV. I mean, this was this was audio, you know, and you just hear your name called. We just were able to you know, set up a tent and stream in the audio so we could hear my name call, which is pretty cool. And then, you know, once my name was called not too long after Tommy Lasorda called me, so that was cool. I love it. That's awesome. And I'm going to do something that I'm not sure is good journalism. But I'm going to trust Wikipedia on this one. And that's, it says that you were teammates in the Pan Am League with Justin Verlander. Is that a that's right. true statement? So what was that like for you, obviously competing technically with him, but probably on that same staff challenging each other to do better? Yeah. And so, you know, Justin and I are uh, close friends to this day and um, we love talking pitching. But, you know, I think with Verlander, the thing that it taught me um, at a young age, we we got out to Arizona for the tryout. We were both, you know, uh, he was at ODU and I was at VCU, CAA pitchers. Um, so we naturally said, hey, you know, how you doing? And we knew of each other, but we didn't know each other. And um, so we became catch partners. And I remember just thinking, like, you know, as we backed up in a long toss, I was like, you know, the things that he does and the way the ball comes out of his hand, I just can't do that. <laughs> and I, and I kind of realized that, like, I don't need to try to do that. And that's where you have that conversation about just the, the different levels of talent and physical talent. 
And I knew that, okay, like when we were competing against each other in college, that I could outpitch him and still beat him. But the things that he could do physically, I, I couldn't compete with, you know. And I think there was probably at least once or twice a week where some of the position players would say, hey, Verlander, let's see how far you could throw it. And he would just launch it like out of the stadium. And um, <laughs> but, you know, we were we became roommates, became friends. And so, you know, that time frame of us kind of growing up in a similar era of the game and obviously what he's doing and has done across his career um, has been very impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, transitioning to like now, obviously, post-career, how you've been able to stay in baseball. You talked a little bit about it, DVS. I think it's very interesting the way you've talked about sequencing and pitching analytics because I, my brother's a, a college baseball player, so I feel like I hear this constantly in his mind. Why don't you go a little bit into like what you guys do, how like you benefit like the young pitcher and how you have applied like research to baseball? Sure, and it's, it's one of those things to where – we don't know. We don't know. And a lot of times when we go to help players, we have to start to engage with them in conversations about what they've been doing, what they know, what they don't know, and then start to have a conversation that the things that are most impactful, you know, yes, from an injury side, but also from the ability to execute and continue to be successful. And once you start to kind of get into those conversations, you realize that we're all kind of on a similar space, there's different terminologies, you know, and so we just like to kind of be a filter to help clear a path a little bit more. And, you know, I'll be the first one to tell you, I mean, the stuff that we've been able to come up with, it's from exhaustive years of, you know, experience and putting data into our model. You know, this isn't something we just kind of, you know, made up or we kind of created very quickly. I mean, it's taken a lot of years, um, but, the more that we do it, we just try to make it more simplistic for someone to comprehend and then integrate into their day to day, you know, because DBS isn't a, uh, a tool that you have to kind of get rid of everything else. You know, it definitely fits into what you're doing. And it's a complement, you know, so we just try to make those things clear because our lane is longevity. You know, how long can you do this for and then how consistently can you do it? You know, so that's really our clear messaging of how we try to help pitchers at all levels. I love it. And then sort of one question that I had, because we recently did have a uh, pitcher on the podcast from the college level that talked about he got the internal brace surgery. And uh, I know he's obviously the pitcher that recently underwent it. So he didn't know sort of in depth, basically what it meant, what it did. He was like, I squirm at the sight of blood. So I didn't want to learn anything about it, which is an interesting approach for a pitcher to have. But uh, sort of wondering if you want to follow up for our loyal listeners, basically, what is the internal brace surgery and what does that do for pitchers as opposed to maybe just going your stereotypical Tommy John route, which I'm sure you've seen a lot of throughout your career? Well, you know what? It's a great question because I'm not actually very familiar with the internal brace surgery, you know, other than, you know, we account for any surgery in the database, you know, anytime that you undergo surgery, you still list it as like a major event that happens to you. The timelines of, um, you know, coming out of the surgery to full recovery, they're always debatable, right? Because it's like, I think I mentioned it earlier, if my previous fastball was 94 with X amount of movement, I could still get back to that point. And, but my ability from, oh, I did it for two innings, but can I do it for five or can I do it for five every five days? That's really how we monitor it. But from the 
the very specificity of that surgery and why it may di be different. You know, even my, I would have to look that up myself. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that obviously, again, we've talked about a lot of it, um, how a lot of pitchers and baseball players don't really understand analytics. If there was like a kid that was like maybe starting out college or like in high school and you had to like, just give them like one piece of advice on like, how to pitch and like how to just develop as a pitcher and as a baseball player using analytics, what would it be? Yeah. I mean, easiest and I tell this to um, players all the time. is like, don't forget about history. You know, it's like, it's really easy for, um, you know, a young player to look at, you know, the immediate players or the MLB or you know, maybe the last few years, but there have been examples of uh, pitchers throughout the game who have done it maybe a little bit differently but can provide a really, really good perspective of how to do it. And there's plenty of interviews out there where they can listen or just find someone who has experience, you know, in the game across multiple decades where they can kind of give that to you. From the analytics side, I mean, look, there's certain pitches of profiles that will always go up. I mean, throwing 93 with more break is better than throwing 88 with more break, right? But at the same time, that's just the output. So you still got to see, well, what's the deception like? Where's the slot? How can we pick up the ball from the hitter standpoint? Like those things still matter. You know, I've seen plenty of guys have like uh, subpar velocity in terms of the standard, but they get outs and there's a, there's a role with that. I mean, if you have a, a soft toss and lefty, that's a low three quarter come in after the guy that's throwing over the top and he's a high, you know, high spin over the top breaking ball that lefty's going to benefit from coming in after him, no doubt. And regardless of what his pitch metrics are, and that's part of the game from the experience side that you see, you know, but I think over the last 10 years, we try to quantify everything and try to be able to put it into, you know, a foreseeable outcome that fits. Well, some things may fit better than others, but they, nothing fits, you know, all the time. And um, so that's kind of that experience side to which you can kind of get from it. I love it. And there's our little pitch for why Rich Hill at 43 soft tossing can still be in the major leagues. Because I know the analytics might not love him, but there's certainly a role for a pitcher like that on a pitching staff. Yeah, I mean, there's there's something, you know, I don't know, you guys probably don't know this, but my sophomore year at VCU, we led all of Division One baseball in Team ERA. And mostly because, you know, I was a Friday, I was our Friday night starter through 91 to 93 from a very low three quarter slot with a slider. Sean Marshall, who pitched with the Cubs, he threw straight over the top. He was six, seven and uh, had a breaking ball. And then on Sunday, we had a guy named Matt Printergast, who was 87 to 89, uh, two seamer, could throw the ball anywhere. He wanted four pitches, but coming out of the pen, we had Brian Marshall, Sean's brother. He got drafted by the Red Sox in the fifth round. He threw from like a thousand different arm slots and had a, had a uh, splitter and it was just nasty. And then you, we had Clay Meredith who pitched in the big leagues for several years. And he was uh, a low three quarter to submarine guy coming in with a ton of movement. And like that was the core. But then you have three to four guys after that who can kind of just fill in. I mean, it's really hard because we we're all coming from different slots, you know, and so no team could see the same type of pitcher all the time. And I think that's part of what analytics has built to a level is we have a bunch of same pitches being thrown 
you know, because those are the ones that are most successful, you know, and uh, so, you know, there's always that kind of uh, value and the ability to kind of assemble a staff that complements each other um, to be able to get results. Oh, I love it. Yeah. There's, there's I think that, that phrase, Nico, that like the one through your only is like, what's it? Something like you're only as best as the 26 guy on your roster, I guess in college as well. It's like the 35 man roster as well. So I know Nico, you've referenced that phrase before on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like everything you said is true. It's like just a variety of looks is just so important in baseball because again, if you see, and especially at the pro level, if you see the same guy five times, I mean, any pro baseball player is going to be able to pick up on it by the third, fourth guy. And it's just like every guy being like the antithesis of like what the premium pitcher is, I think it leads to their success. I remember like when I was in high school and my, I was starting out of college, one of the guys that was there, he was like, his name's Logan Allen. He actually just debuted last year. He's a lefty. And he was so like atypical to what like the, marquee pitcher was he was just a lefty that throw from like low three quarter with like a, a filthy. Yeah. and he for three years he absolutely lit up college baseball because he just was so different from everyone on his staff and everyone that you see in college baseball that he was just so dominant for so long yeah yeah and it, you know you get a guy like that where you know you haven't seen him but once he's still going to have some dominant results and i always said i mean the the art of starting pitching is to be able to take, you know, something off a of fastball, speed it back up, have the change up and keep hitters off balance. So it's that, it's that cat and mouse game where it's just like, if I'm just sheer overpower, yeah, that's probably going to work for an inning or two if you're coming out of the pen. We've seen that. But if I'm trying to go over five innings to get to sixth, seventh, eighth, you know, I got to have some craftsmanship in there to keep guys on their toes. Absolutely. I love it. And we have three fun questions that are here to wrap up if you're game for sure. the Side retired, get three outs in an inning. So you've got your three outs here to retire the side on the interview. Cool. The first one we've got for you is the toughest hitter you've faced throughout your career. Could be the minors, Pan Am games, high school, college, anywhere throughout. Oh, there, uh, there's a guy, God, I'm forgetting his name now. Hold on. Uh, I want to say it was Brian Myro. He was a AAA player um, that it didn't matter what I tried to throw up there. I mean, he hit across the ballpark. And uh, this is back in 2008. I was in AAA, but I really wasn't that great at that point. But it really didn't matter what I thought was a good pitch. You know, wound up in the outfield somewhere. And, um, I mean, he definitely probably hit a 1,000 off of me. Um, so that was that was the guy that I had a really hard time with. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, second question, probably my favorite question that I always ask to ask this one. Um, what was your walk-up song when you were coming up through the minors and even in college? Did you have a specific walk-up song that you loved? Yeah, well, yeah. So my um, it changed um, three times, and uh, but when I was in minors, it was uh, Montel Jordan. This is how we do it, and then um, my freshman year at GW. Um, it was Foo Fighters, my hero. And then my sophomore and junior at VCU was the uh, Top Gun anthem. Oh, that's love it. <laughs> so those are the, a lot of variety there. <laughs> no, those yeah, are good variety, though. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, I love it. And then the third question we have for you, sort of a nice appreciation for hopping on the podcast. We let our guests dictate the future of the show, and you get to shout out someone from your baseball journey, whether it's a teammate, 
a coach or something like that you think would be a cool next person to have on the show? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I just did a post um, about this individual named Billy Milos. And, um, you know, it was it's a it's a great story, but kind of a sad story at the same time, because he was let go by the twins after 30 years. And, um, you know, but he's impacted the careers and lives of so many players by giving an opportunity to, you know, play uh, minor league baseball, play major league baseball. And he's just such a great human being. You know, and so that's someone where in the game now where he's been there for 30 years, so he's in his 50s, it's the game needs more, you know, people inside of it like Billy Milos to continue to help give those players who it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, weren't they didn't have as loud pitch metrics or they weren't on the perfect game top 10 um, or they're not the top 10 prospect, but he sees the value he can, he can realize it and he helps open those doors, you know? So that is a person, you know, he helped our USPBL league for years uh, and he's one of my best friends inside the industry. And, um, you know, I just, I just know that his wealth of knowledge and be able to educate the, uh, the market is a really big deal. I love it. Can't wait to highlight his journey next. Yeah, you got it. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on. 100%. This has been a blast. And thank you so much for joining us. So oh, you're more than welcome. Absolutely. So for Dylan Campione, Nico Fernandez, and Justin Orenduff, until the next time, the side is retired.